Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another serving of Business Soup Talk Radio. If it's in business, it's Business Soup. I'm your host, John Dibbavoise. Welcome to a special serving of Business Soup. It is special because this is our 100th serving. That's right, 100 shows in one year. And to celebrate this huge event, we've brought in from strategist Joel Cox. He is the co-founder and executive vice president. We're going to be talking about the democratization of digital advertising. What is that, you ask? It is going to be the most powerful tool in the new paradigm. It's called programmatic advertising, and it's now accessible to you and me and millions of small and mid-sized businesses being able to deliver through the -the over-the-top technology our ads rifle shot at your audience on television. From strategist and Joel Cox, we are going to give you the OTT recipe on this 100th serving on Business Soup. Joel, welcome to this serving of Business Soup. Pleasure to be here. Pull up a chair and sit on down, as I say all the time. Dave Miles, your cohort, was here earlier, and he served up some of this about strategists. We're talking about, as we did, the democratization of digital advertising. I didn't understand it the first time he told me what that meant. So why don't you share with us what does the democratization, which is a mouthful, of digital advertising, what does that mean? That's, that's quite a word soup we got there. So the democratization of digital advertising is what Strategist has done to bring complex, costly, hard to figure out digital advertising solutions and made it available to mom and pop, small to medium advertisers and small businesses. Now, this is significant because the area where we play the most effectively, and I'm sure we'll get to this in this conversation today, is one of the most expensive and convoluted spaces to advertise in. And for the average small business advertiser to do it is very complex. So when we talk about democratization, John, it's the process of making that available to more advertisers. This is such a powerful medium of advertising. And before we got started, was available to the Fortune 100s, to Coke, to Ford, to Budweiser. We're here to make sure that the local advertiser can participate and take advantage of this power as well. Well, before we get into the local advertisers and how my, say, my restaurant could be targeting those people within my community, because what point is it to me to market to Chicago if I'm out in Southern California and such? So, and that's what Dave and I talked about in bit. But first, let's talk about the satellites that are flying around and the current distribution. I have said for years, distribution is the most important part about business because without it, you've got nothing. We sit down, 500 channels to choose from, bombarded with advertising, and I end up on two of the 500 every stinking night because that's the timing, and I have to watch it on their schedule. What do you see as the future of these satellites spinning around with the advent of or these legacy media companies? What's going to happen to them with streaming and 5G that's coming in to make streaming live, having on-demand content? What's going to happen with these guys? John, the, the name of the game here is consumer choice. We as TV watchers and media consumers want it when we want it, not when the broadcaster tells us to watch it. Now, I'm old enough to remember Thursday nights, my mom would let me order a pizza and sit in front of the TV to watch the Seinfeld, ER, Friends, must-watch TV, right? 
that doesn't exist anymore. It, we can do better than that. Now we consumers say, I want to watch this when I want to watch it. So the era that we're in now is on demand, right? Consumers have demonstrated through the statistics of cord cutting, cord shading, generations of consumers now know being referred to as cord nevers, having never paid for cable or satellite subscription. What we've seen here is the fact that streaming has positioned itself to supplant cable and broadcast television as the primary and preferred way to consume media. You touched on something else, John, 500 channels in your cable subscription, right? We are living in the golden age of content. Netflix and Amazon pumping in somewhere north of $30 billion for original programming. Apple, a traditional hardware and software company is entering the fray for original content. The amount of content that the average American consumer has at their fingertips today has never been greater. We're seeing content developers such as Disney and now mm -hmm. Netflix and Amazon, Apple. They have been content developers and now they're going, well, why should we sell it wholesale through the distribution channels of, say, DirecTV when we can just create our own on-demand channel like Disney Plus? Boy, they really thought long and hard about that name. Walmart Plus. Yeah. I mean, it's just, if you're going to make a reoccurring revenue model, you just slap a plus on the next, <laughs> on the end of it and you're done. Come on, guys. All right. So we have all this content and now it's on demand as we're talking about the consumer wants it now, kind of like a child. We've gone back to our childhood. I just don't want it. I want it now. Yeah. Not only that, but the average American consumer's attention span online has gone from 30 seconds earlier in the decade down to about 15 seconds about five years ago. We're now seeing that the average American's attention span online is now at about six seconds, which is about a second shorter than the memory span of a goldfish. So we are quickly racing to the bottom in terms of now, now, now. Here's the thing. When we talk about how to leverage that, how to work around that as marketers and advertisers, we've got to be very aware and cognizant of that. And something, John, you had mentioned earlier that I just want to touch on is the fact that advertisers and marketers have been irresponsible for the last decade. Talk to me about your experience or feelings when you see commercials today. Are you excited? Absolutely not. And that leads me into what are the solutions here? If I'm a small business owner and I'm targeting, what is the best kind of message to deliver? Do I go funny? Do I go crude? Or do I promote something like a, a nonprofit organization, you know, that tearful one with the puppy that's been rescued or the sacrifices that are happening, unfortunately, leading to the bleeding hearts? You know, what's the best method of a message to get people to not mute me and or fast forward through me? John, it's a, it's a great question. I think this is going to be a theme that we're going to talk about a little bit more. The answer to that in one word is relevance. Now, we've got best practices for various types of clients. Some, it's use humor. Others, it's tell a story. Others, it's dogs. Sometimes it can be as simple as dogs. People love dogs. I love dogs. I'm sure you love dogs. So that's always a shortcut. But if I could encapsulate that from a higher level, it's all about relevancy. It means that we need to put a message in front of John that resonates with John based upon who John is as a consumer and a person. We need to put a message in front of Joel that resonates with me. Now, we may be selling the same widget, but the message to John may need to be different than the message to Joel. And what's so compelling about what's happening in programmatic connected television today that strategist has democratized to all of the advertisers out there is that we can now identify the Johns and the Joels in the world regardless of what content they're watching. 
because let's go back to this whole broad swath golden age of content. There's more apps, there's more channels than there have ever been. So how do we go out and find John when he's ready to buy our widget? You've got to disconnect the previous mindset that marketers have been using for the last hundred years of assuming the type of content John or Joel watches and instead use data to find us regardless of where and what we're watching to serve us a message based upon who we are as consumers and what interests us and what messaging we're going to respond to. Oftentimes, I'll be sitting down at the table and we'll have a conversation about looking at something. And all of a sudden, there's an ad on our Google. Are they listening? Mm -hmm. Are they watching? Well, I know they have the ability through smart television to watch us because I saw the demonstration of that at the broadcasters convention where they were able to watch us watch television. And then they they could push commercials towards us of what we watched over a period of time. And at first I thought, well, that's really cool. And I said, wait a minute, how are they watching us? And I didn't realize I had a camera on my new big screen television. I don't know if that's being implemented, but I thought that was rather invasive. So let's talk about that just for a little bit. If you're going to do this right, marketers and advertisers have got to gain back the trust of consumers that have been lost over the last 10, 20 years. When we talk about the fact that Facebook and Google are now being investigated and potentially prosecuted for anti-competitive behavior, for absolute flagrant violations of our privacy, we know things have gotten off the rails. Yes, they know they're doing it. They say they don't, but they, they have written programs to follow us and they wait to get caught. And then they say, we know nothing. We're seeing that all the time. Because the fine does not outweigh the upside. Facebook paid a $5 billion fine, and the day they did, their stock price went up because it indemnified them for anything else terrible they do. So these tech giants are so big that they can just go run afoul of our data and of our privacy. Now, that's a whole other biz soup conversation we should have, but let me just touch on a couple things. As it relates to that mysterious question, is my TV looking at me? Is my phone listening to me? I can't say for sure. I've read one way that it is. I've read other ways that it is not. But the fact of the matter is, John, that when it comes to audience targeting, the things that good advertisers on the up and up whitehead advertisers can do with sophisticated evaluation and modeling of your behaviors online, of your demographics, we can make advertising so precise that it almost feels too good to be true, that it almost feels like we're listening to your conversations. now. The type of advertising that strategists and firms like ours offer do not take advantage of any sort of thing that would be seemingly violating your privacy. I'm not able to offer you targeting solutions based upon what your phone's microphone listened to you say or what the camera on your TV or your Nest thermostat indicates you're doing. We're going to be able to connect all kinds of data sources, but from much more appropriate and comfortable from the consumer type of things. This would be information about your browsing behaviors. What are you buying online? What products are you buying at the grocery store with your shopper loyalty card? Where are you going according to the smartphone, GPS data in your smartphone, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to run right up to that line of consumer comfort and privacy, but we're not going to cross it. You're taking the Mm -hmm. data that is available as a result of my browsing history, as well Mm -hmm. as where I have gone. 
on my GPS because that all comes together through whether it be Google or whomever. And so you're able to go to that resource, find out John goes down to the sushi place twice a week. And you could be a competitor that I'm not going to or I don't even know you exist. And now through what you're talking about, if I'm understanding this correctly, is that you can send a competitor's sushi bar an offer to me knowing that on Tuesdays and Thursdays or on particular dates, those are my traditional days that I go down and do a pickup of that sushi. Well, here's another opportunity. It sounds like I could, as a small business owner of a sushi store, send a deal, a coupon. Hey, don't forget us on your Tuesday sushi pickup. You nailed it. I <laughs> couldn't have said it better myself. Now, the one thing I should I, clarify I like here, that. we would never know that it's John going to get sushi two times a week. Therefore, we're going to send John an ad for a rival sushi company. When I say send an ad, we'll want to talk about the ad delivery and what those placements are in a moment. But the only thing I want to clarify here is it's always anonymized data. We'll never know it's John. We'll just know it's anonymous consumer ABC123. There's a fine line that when you're doing this properly, we're never going to know these online and offline behaviors are Johns. They're anonymous persons. And that's the one point of distinction between Google and Facebook. Google and Facebook have both your personally identifiable information as well as the anonymized behaviors that you're doing online, and they're able to connect them. And that's where we think the trust factor has eroded. That's where consumers want to opt out. Whereas if this is kept anonymized, just so you get an ad for sushi and not for Thai food, because you don't want Thai food, you want sushi. Uh, Utilizing this data can take us back to the main theme of our conversation today, provide you the most relevant advertising. That instead of turning you off and making you lean back and change the channel, the more relevant the advertising, the more likely you are to engage. And that's the value proposition that we need to reinforce here. Ads are okay. Consumers have indicated they're willing to exchange a piece of their free time in the form of advertising exposure for free content online, and in particular on their OTT or connected television device. We're going to talk about when you're streaming a show, you got two ways you can do it. You can do the Netflix model, which means you pay them 15 bucks a month and you watch as much as you want, but you never see an ad. The opposite end of that coin is the ad-supported model. And there's a growing number of very popular apps out there that consumers can watch an episode of Seinfeld, taking it back to that, or a movie, and they don't have to pay a cent to do it. The exchange there is that they may see an ad in between some episodes for the local sushi place that just opened because they happen to go down to sushi twice a week. Because you know that these people in this particular zip code, they buy particular restaurants But as a business owner, I can push to you my ad for the sushi, if I'm the sushi owner, in that zip code and say, come on down to us as an ad that is within the streaming content that my consumer is currently watching. What is the acceptable length of the ad that the consumer is willing to watch on this streaming feed before they go someplace else? The ad units themselves that have been carved out are in increments of 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and on special occasions, 60 seconds. The duration of your ad is going to have a lot of correlation to do with the duration of the free content you're watching. If you're watching a 22-minute episode of a sitcom, you're likely to see a whole bunch of 15s intermixed. If you're watching longer form content, let's say an hour-long show, you may see more uh, pods of 30-second ad units. If you're watching a two and a half to three hour movie, 
you may even see some 60 second ad units spliced throughout. We call that mid-roll video. Now the question of how long before a consumer's disengaged completely depends on the quality and back to the word of the day, relevance of our message, right? right. If you're a voracious sushi eater, you <laughs> love sushi, you're going there twice a week and we show you a sushi ad, you're much more likely to stick around than if I show you an ad for women's high heels that you're not going to have any interest in. So again, the name of the game here to maintain consumer engagement is the fact that we want this ad to be relevant and we want it to be engaging. And that has so much to do with the fact that uh, we consumers for the longest time have been overwhelmed with completely irrelevant ads. I, I cite one of the few shows I watch on linear broadcast TV still 60 minutes. And when 60 minutes goes to ad break, it's pharmaceutical ad after pharmaceutical ad after pharmaceutical ad for conditions I don't have, for conditions I may never have, certainly not for a while. So why am I being bombarded with completely irrelevant messaging? I just go flip over to Sunday night football, right? And I'll watch a couple minutes of football commercial break. We as marketers in the connected television programmatic space have the ability to eliminate that waste and serve me a list of ads that only resonate with me and serve you while watching the exact same program across the country, completely different and equally relevant ads for you. Well, wait till you get to the point where AARP starts sending you membership information. You're going, when did this happen? With that in mind, with those different types of commercials, and I see them all the time, the short ones that last the 15 seconds, and then you get into the three-minute one that's selling me a pillow, pillowcases, a bed topper, and all this other stuff, and it goes on like an infomercial, which it is. These three-minute-long my pillow infomercials, we're not going to run those. What we're talking about is a higher degree of quality, but we're going to cap the ad units at 60, but more likely than that, 30 seconds at a time. But what we've got the ability to do in the programmatic connected TV space that can be more compelling than a three-minute spot is serve sequential ads. We're going to tell chapter one, and then only after we know John has watched chapter one, we're going to then serve him a 30-second spot for chapter two. And then the next day, we're going to serve him chapter three. And that becomes a very compelling way to tell a story, but in a bite-size cookie crumb type way where all of a sudden we're not overwhelming the consumer with a three minute spot that they're going to check out mentally after 30 seconds of, we're going to spoon feed it along the way. And we think that's a much better way to do long form advertising. And what about the call to action? Is there an offer? If you call right now, you can get uh, the second one for free, just pay separate shipping and handling. Should there always be a call to action, a deal when you're doing these spots? Completely depends. What's your goal? Are you branding yourself? Are you to the new sushi restaurant in town and all you want to do is let people know that? Or do you have a goal to sell, to fill up your restaurant, to max out your delivery for the night? It completely depends. We work with automotive advertisers and they can go one of two ways. The first is a very aggressive call to action. Sunday, 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 lease payment, lease payment, lease payment. Right. In which case, absolutely, you're going to want to have a call to action. Now, that call to action needs to be catered to the audience, right? Maybe I'm a guy that leases, and so I need to see a lease special to be interested. But maybe you're a guy that buys, and so you want to see a low APR or $0 down payment or sign and drive type transaction. So again, that takes us back to the theme of relevancy. We're going to need to have a call to action that resonates with the person that's seeing it. So as far as whether or not we need a call to action every time, sorry, I don't have a clear answer on that, but it really depends on what your goals are. So it's not so much a call to action as I would want 
someone to, I would want to go into the store because of its relevance to my lifestyle. Uh, whereas the sushi or restaurant, Mexican restaurant, could be an impulse. There could be a call to action there where, you know, get a free bag of chips type of thing. Go here and, and download our app, something like that. So a call to action for that instant sale as opposed to branding to get me to go into your store. All right. So let's talk about I'm the small business and I go strategize me, strategist. You have my attention. What do I have to do and how does it work? We need to understand what you are selling, what is your brand, and who buys it. We take that information, bounce it off the various databases of consumer browsing behavior, location data, all this type of information, and we create a digital fingerprint that matches your ideal customer's profile. We then discuss with you, what do we want to accomplish here? Do we want to to sell more sushi delivery? Do we want to sell a few more saddles this month? Do we want to let everyone in this zip code know we're in business? Great. We collaborate with you, share best practices on how to develop your creative. When we say creative, in this case, we're talking about 15 and 30 second video ads. And then we work with you to essentially identify how many people in your targeted universe, whether that's a city, a state, a zip code, a DMA, match your ideal customer's targeting or profile. And we can help you back into how much money to spend to reach them. Like with Facebook, I can say, all right, this is the target that I want from the traditional shotgun advertising approach. And I want to narrow it down to a rifle shot. I want to hit this target audience, 20 to 30 year olds, God help me, that go to sushi stores twice a week or something like that. And then I can narrow it down and I can tell Facebook or whomever, I only want to spend $20 a day for that engagement. Can I do that type of strategy through strategists or through the, the ad buys that you do? Yes, basically. Now, again, I need to be very clear that Facebook and Google are in the digital advertising ecosystem referred to as walled gardens, meaning that the data that you can leverage and activate in Facebook and in Google exists only in, in Facebook and in Google. What strategists will give you access to is the open internet of streaming video. So again, this is premium, long form, non-user generated video. So this is basically access to episodes, movies, documentaries, and live sports. And that's on apps like Sling TV, if you've heard of that, AT&T Now, Crackle, Pluto, Tubi, et cetera. I mean, the list goes on and these apps are gaining in subscribership. They're being acquired by major telcos, which tells us that that's where the momentum is. But what we can do is assist you in understanding how much money to spend. Now, it's important to point out that connected television is arguably the most costly and complex digital advertising medium out there today. Your $20 a day in Facebook will not be adequate for a connected television campaign. This is almost akin to a TV campaign. The advertisers we work with that are having the most success with connected television are those that are already running linear or broadcast TV and are understanding that the audience or universe of people that are reachable on their linear broadcast buys is diminishing, but the cost to reach a smaller number of people is not. And therefore, it becomes very strategic to reallocate a portion of your linear TV budget into connected television, where we can offer you that nearly the same precision as a Facebook targeted campaign. But instead of an ad in Facebook, it's an ad on the most prominent digital device in every American's household, their living room television. 
So if I'm a small business and I'm down there out in my community known as Restaurant Row, where there's about 50 different restaurants that might be a little pricey for me individually, but in a collective advertising program, all the restaurants could combine their limited advertising budget into one ad and say, come on down to Restaurant Row, where somebody, all of them are going to benefit from having these new customers or reminding the old customers to show up. So there's a collective opportunity in advertising that I would see if this is not as affordable as the $20 limit or $100 limit or 1000 whatever it is on Facebook. John, you made some really good points there. Yes. Cumulatively, budgets can be combined to give you the ability to reach to enter this space. However, one thing that could be done in your restaurant row example is maybe we nonetheless still have three, four or five different ads or creatives that are delivered. And so in, let's just say a 10 mile radius of restaurant row, we're gonna serve sushi ads to the households that based upon their online and offline behaviors are interested in sushi. But we're gonna serve Mexican food ads to the households that are indicating a preference to eat Mexican and hamburger ads to the households that just wanna come down to the burger joint in restaurant row. So there still remains the ability to be very nuanced and very, once again, relevant to the people that are going to be most interested in the brand. Because what we don't want to do is serve the burger joint ad to a vegetarian household (laughs) and the sushi ad to the household that uh, certainly does not have any interest in sushi, as an example. So the need and the ability for relevance and precision still exists. But I love how you touched on the concept that for advertisers who may individually may not have enough budget to cross into this ecosystem, cumulatively doing it, and then having individualized creative for individual audiences can be kind of a way to solve that paradox. Kind of like working with the Homeowners Association to promote the development. You have you have this collective that represents everybody. And if you as a business owner want to have a specific message, you want to be highlighted, well, you can pay a little bit more, but you're using everybody else's money to promote not only the complex, but your business as well. And everybody wins. As soon as they drive in, they might say, well, I didn't see that place before. We'll have to come back for that one, but we're here for the sushi and such. So I, I see a definite benefit to that. What has been the effect of the COVID crisis that this country, this this two-week shutdown that we've been going through for 10 months now, what has that impact had on advertising in your field with strategists? So what has COVID done to the industry that you are experiencing and what would be your advice to the audience on dealing with that? It's so interesting, John. I mean, we're going to look back on 2020 and just think about, wow, how this has permanently affected and changed some of the ways we as consumers consume media and how we're marketed to. But specifically to answer your question, this has renewed the emphasis of focusing on the in-home targeting, out-of-home billboards, in-arena advertising, all of these mediums that needed to take advantage of consumers out and about in the economy has screeched to a halt. We've got stay-at-home orders. We've got quarantine orders. We've got companies transitioning to 100% remote work from home. We've got schools and universities sending kids back home. Everyone's in the home. And what are we doing when we're in the home? We're in front of screens. And so that has meant that there's an even greater emphasis on the largest, most prominent digital device in the household, the living room television. And so our industry connected television has really had a significant growth in the era of this pandemic. 
it's interesting to think, but this industry didn't survive despite the pandemic. It has actually been propped up as a result of it. The amount of TV that the average American stream over the internet now has increased over two hours per day, not two hours per day total, but it's gone from three, four, five hours a day to five, six, seven hours a day of content streamed through their television because we as consumers have been stuck at home for so long. So that has really afforded a much greater opportunity for so many more advertisers to enter the connected television space because we know that the American consumer is now sitting in front of their television more often, making it easier to reach them. So what do we do? What do your listeners do? You got to get off the sideline. You got to get your call to action, start thinking about who your target audience is and start figuring out how you want to leverage connected television. Because even once everyone gets vaccinated, once COVID goes away, the trends of American consumers streaming their content rather than watching it on cable or broadcast will not go back. And it's very interesting because what it's done is it has empowered these small businesses, my audience, to be able to level the playing field with the big box companies. They were not incorporated into the shutdown. They were considered essentials, whereas my business may not be. Out in California, they keep moving the goalposts and just destroying small business, my audience. And so now with marketing programs such as Strategist, you're able to bring in that rifle shot in a more level playing field and have my ads running there with the Walmarts and the Targets and the Home Depots that are already out there. And I can target the people that are most likely going to want to use or consume my product. It's a wonderful business strategy. And of course, without the connected TV, you guys wouldn't be here. That's exactly right. And neither would most small business advertisers because the inefficiency that exists in a broadcast or cable TV buy means we're going to serve that to every household in the DMA or every household in this list of 75 zip codes. Problem is, is that in that list, maybe one in a hundred of those households actually matter to me as the small business advertiser. Right. The power of what connected television has afforded us the opportunity to do is take advantage of the same high impact sight, sound, and motion TV commercial. But instead of the spray and pray shotgun mentality, like you referenced, John, we're only going to serve it to this household here and this household here. And so the budget that would have gone into linear for a spray and pray campaign where maybe it hit a couple households that mattered now can be delivered only and exclusively to the households that matter. The opportunity is greater. And what I've discovered in the digital marketing, as opposed to my 20 years in broadcast, where, okay, I was on all these stations across the country. I sent out an ad. I didn't know who listened to it or there was any response because you didn't know who you were talking to because there was no way to have an interaction such as in digital So by being able to send out a message, what they call to action, I can almost immediately determine what works. Uh, Like in, in my case, I can get the message out. I can get you in front of whoever you want to do business with. But if you can't make the sale, something's wrong with the pitch. It's either the call to action or they didn't believe it. And it gives you the opportunity to make an adjustment, whatever that adjustment may need to be. But the fact that you know it worked or it didn't work is invaluable you know, that's worth as as much as the sale itself to know why it didn't sell. 100%, Sean. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit because you touched on something that might actually be the most compelling part of this entire strategy. We've already talked about the fact that you can find or identify any household and serve it an ad 
into their connected television, right? That much is clear. But your point about, well, what happened after they saw the ad? The so what is so incredibly important that we've actually spent a huge amount of our time and resources developing what's referred to as the attribution suite. Attribution in this context, meaning what did somebody do after they saw that ad on connected television? Because the one thing about digital advertising in Facebook or the open internet, as they say, is that you can click on an ad. Can't do that yet in connected television, right? You can't click an ad on your TV yet. So attribution becomes a very important way of understanding. We showed John an ad for the sushi restaurant. Now, what did John do? Let's not use assumption. Let's know deterministically what happened with John. We've got a series of products that bolt on to every connected television campaign that tell us that, okay, John saw the ad for the sushi place, and then he went to the sushi place's website and placed an order to go. Or he went to the sushi place's website and made an online reservation. Or maybe we don't have a website that we want to track, but we instead want to understand who saw this and then physically put their smartphone in their back pocket or their purse and walked into my location. We can measure foot traffic. If you're the tax store for uh, equestrians, we can measure the people that came in, bought something from you, and ended up in your client's CRM. We can match that back and say, 75% of the people who came in and bought a saddle this month had been exposed to your message on connected television. And that, again, removes all of the assumption and all of the anecdote. So again, unlike linear or broadcast or cable TV, where we say, okay, we ran for this week, and then it looks like sales went up. So we're just going to assume that we can correlate those two. That assumption is gone, and it's instead replaced with data-driven analysis to be able to say deterministically, John saw this ad, and John made a purchase. Good. John saw this ad. John did not purchase. Let's go back and look at what we can do differently. Does the creative need to be changed? Does the call to action need to be more compelling? Do we need to reach John at 10 a.m. for the sushi dinner decision versus 4 p.m.? So it opens up so much more opportunity to work with your data and understand how you can optimize better. Well, I must say that I am left with the wow factor on this one because it's so interesting. And I think about my evolution through not knowing any of this 20 some years ago to understanding what you're talking about and how my business and more importantly, how my audience of small business owners can take advantage of opportunities such as this, as we've discussed here. It's fascinating to me, as I know my audience is going to find it. If you'd like more information, folks, as always, just go to BizSoup. You will find not only the interview here that Joel and I did about strategists, but you'll see the transcript as well as the connection, how to get through directly to Joel and to strategists, and as well as Dave Miles. If you remember way back when in episode number 63, his partner, his co-founder, Dave Miles, was talking about similar things from strategists. Joel. I can't thank you enough for being at the table here with Business Soup. Thanks for being on this serving of Business Soup. It was my pleasure, John. Really enjoyed our conversation today. This has been another serving of Business Soup, where business comes for business. I'm John Debevoise, inviting you to visit the website for more servings of what is best in business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.